Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Jane Chayabatari, Lily King, Anthony Mara, and Jane Ann Phillips. You will now hear Pamela Mills, AWP's Director of Development, and Jane Chayabatari, Vice President of the National Book Critics Circle, provide introductions. My name is Pamela Mills. I'm the Director of Development with AWP. Thank you all for coming. I would like to first do a little bit of housekeeping. Please turn off your cell phones and also remember no flash photography and give the artists and the writers a few moments after the featured presentation to get to the book signing table before you go out and buy your book and ask them to sign it. And now I would also like to acknowledge the National Book Critics Circle for sponsoring this event. And I would like to now introduce Jane Chayabatari, <laughs> critic and wonderful person. <laughs> Give me a second. I'm going to have to pull this down slightly. I'm a vice president of the National Book Critics Circle. I, I handle the online and the social media for the organization, and I'm a former president, so I know what it's like to be in the shoes of the people who have to worry about everything, including ordering lunch. Um, I also have an enduring passion for books. Um, that's why I got involved in the National Book Critics Circle. It was founded 40 years ago by literary folk who wanted to expand the literary conversation of the Algonquin Roundtable in New York to a national conversation. We're delighted because today we are facing our ninth year as literary partners with AWP. Well, I just spent the morning down at our booth, number 1201, in the book fair with a lot of NBCC members and board members, and we were um, helping people play the Name That Author quiz. You may have been handed a quiz clue sheet by one of our board members or members. Play the game and bring us your answers by noon on Saturday, and we'll have a drawing at that point and see if we have some winners. I wanted to say just for a moment, it would be nice if we could have a round of applause for our AWP hosts, Dave Fenza and Christian Teresi, Cynthia Sherman, Pamela Mills, and all the other hardworking AWP staffers. You know, they make this conference happen every year, and we arrive and take part in it, but they make it happen, so thank you to all of them. How many of you have never been to an AWP conference before? Are there newcomers out there? I hope you have a great time. I'll never forget my first AWP and hearing authors who I had dreamt about who were so inspiring and seeing them read in person. It was great. I hope you'll come to our book fair booth, 1201. You can say hello. You can sign up for our free critical notes. It comes out weekly. You might join us if you would like. We have student memberships for $15, friends of, and um, if you're a critic, a working critic, uh, we have memberships. You can play the Name That Author game. It's, it's really clues of quotes from 40 years of, of winning authors. We're perhaps the most intensively vetted literary award around. We don't give our awards based on publisher entries. We give them based on a year-long conversation 
among 24 members of our board. After we nominate books, we have conversations about them in person and through a, a password-protected write board and on listservs. We winnow things down to a long list at the end of the year, and then everybody reads all the books, and we have a discussion. We create our finalists, and then finally we meet on the day of the announcement, and we fight through who will be our winners. So as you know, critics are critical opinionated. We don't always agree. But by the time we narrow down our choices, our 30 finalists, we consider the best writers publishing today, which is why it's such a pleasure to be able to sit here and, and introduce three of our wonderful, wonderful award-honored novelists. From the far right, we have Lily King, whose book Euphoria was a finalist this past year. Anthony Mera, whose book is A Constellation, um, hang on, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena, was the very first winner of our John Leonard First Book Award last year, and Jane Ann Phillips, who has the distinction of having been a novelist, a finalist twice for two different novels. Each will read from their work for 15 minutes, then we'll have a conversation, and then they will sign your books in the back. First up is going to be Lily King. Lily grew up in Massachusetts, studied at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and her master's in creative writing is from Syracuse. Her first novel, The Pleasing Hour, which came out in 1999, was a New York Times notable book and an alternate for the Penn Hemingway Award. Her second book, The English Teacher, won the Maine Fiction Award, as did her third, Father of the Rain. Her latest novel, Euphoria, won the Kirkus Award for Fiction, the New England Book Award for Fiction, and was a finalist in our Book Critics Circle Awards last month. I reviewed Euphoria for NPR, and I concluded that it was atmospheric and sensual, with startling images throughout. Euphoria is an intellectually stimulating tour de force. Our book critics board member, Colette Bancroft, reviewed Euphoria for Critical Mass, our, our book critics blog, which is at www.bookcritics.org. We have a series where each of the finalists is reviewed by a board member every year. She ended, the last dozen pages of Euphoria are filled with searing shocks, and the book's final image is an anthropologist's acute observation of a tiny scrap of material culture that breaks the heart. I'm delighted to introduce to you Lily King, reading from Euphoria. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you to Jane and to the NBCC for inviting me. It's really such a great honor to be here with Jane Ann and Tony. I think I'm going to read from the first chapter of Euphoria, my fourth novel, uh, before I do, I thought I would just say that I really didn't mean to write a novel loosely, loosely based on a four-month period in the life of Margaret Mead. I just stumbled on a biography about her years ago, and I got to this chapter when she was way up the Sepik River of Papua New Guinea with her second husband, and she got into the situation where she was having this wild, malarial, intellectual love triangle with her husband and another anthropologist that they meet there. And I thought, wow, you know, someone's got to write a novel about that. 
but I really didn't think it would be me. I was so curious, though, about the situation that I really couldn't stop myself from learning more and learning more. I was writing another novel at the time, but I kept on taking breaks from that novel because it was a hard novel to write and going back and just finding out a little bit more about that situation in Papua New Guinea. And, you know, in the end, I didn't end up telling her story, the story of Margaret Mead, but I, I definitely borrowed a lot from it. So this beginning chapter, you have a female anthropologist named Nell. She's 31, Nell Stone. She's with her husband, Fenn, and they're leaving one tribe and they're going to another. As they were leaving the Mabanyo, someone threw something at them. It bobbed a few yards from the stern of the canoe, a pale brown thing. Another dead baby, Fenn said. He had broken her glasses by then, so she didn't know if he was joking. Ahead lay the bright break in the curve of dark green land where the boat would go. She concentrated on that. She did not turn around again. The few Mambanyu on the beach were singing and beating the death gong for them, but she did not look at them a last time. Every now and then, when the four rowers, all standing, calling back to their people or out to other canoes, pulled at the same time, a small gust of wind struck her damp skin. Her lesions prickled and tightened, as if hurrying to heal in the brief dry air. The wind stopped and started, stopped and started. She could feel the gap between sensation and recognition of it and knew that the fever was coming on again. The rowers ceased rowing to stab a snake-necked turtle and haul it into the boat, still writhing. Behind her, Fenn hummed a dirge for the turtle, too low for anyone but her to hear. A motorboat was waiting for them where the Uat met the Sepik. There were two white couples on board with the driver, a man named Minton, whom Fenn knew from Carnes. The women wore stiff dresses and silk stockings, the men dinner jackets. They did not complain about the heat, which meant they lived here, the men overseeing either plantations or mines or enforcing the laws that protected them. At least they weren't missionaries. She couldn't have tolerated a missionary today. One woman had bright gold hair, the other eyelashes like black ferns. Both carried beaded purses. The smooth white of their arms looked fake. She wanted to touch the one closer to her, push up her sleeve and see how far up the white went, the way all her tribes, wherever she went, needed to touch her when she first arrived. She saw pity in the women's gazes as she and Fen boarded with their dirty duffels and their malarial eyes. The engine, when it started up, was so loud, so startling, that her hands rose to her ears like a child's. She saw Fenn flinch to do the same, and she smiled reflexively, but he did not like that she'd noticed and moved away from her to talk to Minton. She took a seat at the bench at the stern with the women. "'What's the occasion?' she asked Tilly, the gold-haired one. "'If she'd had hair like that, the natives never would have stopped touching. "'You couldn't go into the field with hair like that.' They both managed to hear her over the engine and laughed. It's Christmas Eve, silly. They had been drinking already, though it couldn't have been much past noon, and it would have been easier to be called silly if she hadn't been wearing a filthy cotton shift over Fenn's pajamas. She had the lesions, a fresh gash on her hand from a sago palm thorn, a weakness in her right ankle, the old Solomon neuritis in her arms, and an itchy sting between her toes that she hoped wasn't another batch of ringworm. She could normally keep the discomfort at bay while she was working, but it kicked in hard watching these women in their silks and pearls. Do you think Lieutenant Boswell will be there? Tilly asked the other woman. She thinks he's divine. This one, Eva, was taller, stately, bare-fingered. I do not, and so do you, Tilly said, but you are a married woman, my dear. We can't expect someone to stop noticing people the minute the ring goes on, Tilly said. 
I don't, but your husband certainly does. In her mind, Nell was writing, ornamentation of neck, wrists, fingers, paint on face only, emphasis on lips, dark red, and eyes black, hips emphasized by cinching of waist, conversation competitive. The valued thing is the man, not having one necessarily, but having the ability to attract one. She couldn't stop herself. Have you been studying the natives, Tilly asked her. No, she's come from the twilight ball at the floating palais. I have, since July. I mean, the July before last one. A year and a half up that little tributary somewhere, Tilly said. Good God, Eva said. A, fir a year first in the mountains north of here with the Anapa, Nell said, and then another five and a half months with the Monbanyo up the Uat. We left early. I didn't like them. Like them, Eva said. I would think keeping your head attached to your neck might be a more reasonable goal. Were they cannibals, Tilly said. It was not safe to give them an honest answer. She did not know who their men were. No, they fully understand and abide by the new laws. They're not new, Eva said. They were issued four years ago. I think to an ancient tribe it all feels new, but they obey and blame all their bad luck and the lack of homicide. Do they talk about it, Tilly said. She wondered why every white asked about cannibalism. She thought of Fen when he returned from the ten-day hunt, his sad attempt to keep it from her. I tasted it, he finally blurted out, and they're right, it does taste like old pig. It was a joke the Mombanyo had that the missionaries had tasted like old pig. They speak of it with great longing. The two wo women, even long, brazen Eva, shrank a bit. And then Tilly asked, Did you read the book about the Solomon Islands? Where all the children were fornicating in the bushes? Eva, I did. And then Nell couldn't help herself. Did you like it? Oh, I don't know, Tilly said. I don't understand what all the fuss is about. Is there fuss? Nell said. She'd heard n nothing about its reception in Australia. I'll say. She wanted to ask by whom and about what, but one of the men was coming around with an enormous bottle of gin, refilling glasses. Your husband said you wouldn't want any, he said to her apologetically, for he didn't have a glass for her. Fen had his back to her, but she could see the expression on his face, just from the way he was standing, with his back arched and his heels slightly lifted. He would be compensating for his wrinkled clothing and his odd profession with a hard, masculine glare. He would allow himself a small smile, only if he himself had made the joke. Fortified by several sips, Tilly continued her inquiry. And will you write about these tribes? It's all a jumble in my head still. I never know anything until I get back to my desk in New York. She was aware of her own impulse to compete, to establish dominance over these clean, pretty women by conjuring up a desk in New York. Is that where you're headed now? Back to your desk? Her desk, her office, the diagonal window that looked out onto Amsterdam and 118th. Distance could feel like a terrible claustrophobia at times. No, we're going to Victoria next to study the Aborigines. Tilly pulled a pout. You poor thing, you look beat up enough as it is. We can tell you all you, right here, all you need to know about the Abos, Eva said. It was just this last five months, this last tribe. She couldn't think how to describe them. She and Fen had not agreed on one thing about the Mombanyo. He had stripped her of her opinions. She marveled now at the blankness. Tilly was looking at her with a drunk's depthless concern. Sometimes you just find a culture that breaks your heart, she said finally. Nellie, Fen called to her. Mitten says Bankson's still here, he waved his hand upriver. Of course he is, she thought, but said, the one who stole your butterfly net? She was trying to be playful. He didn't steal anything. What had he said exactly? It had been on the ship coming home from the Solomons in one of their first conversations. They'd been gossiping about their old professors. Hadn't liked me, Fen had said, but he gave Bankson his butterfly net. 
Bankson had ruined their plans. They'd come in 31 to study two New Guinea tribes. But because Bankson was on the Sepik River, they'd gone north, up the mountains, to the Anapa, with the hope that when they came back down in a year, he'd be gone, and they'd have their pick of the river tribes, whose less isolated culture was, were, were rich with artistic, economic, and spiritual traditions. But he was still there. So they'd gone in the opposite direction from him and the Kione he studied, south down a tributary of the Sepik called the Uat, where they'd found the Mombanyo. She had known that tribe was a mistake after the first week, but it took her five months to convince Fen to leave. Fen stood beside her. We should go and see him. Really? He'd never suggested this before. Why now when they'd already made arrangements for Australia? He had been with Haddon, Bankson, and the butterfly net in Sydney four years ago, and she didn't think they'd liked each other much. Bankson's Kiona were warriors, the rulers of the Sepik before the Australian government had cracked down, separating villages, allotting them parcels of land they did not want, throwing resistors in jail. The Mombanyo, fierce warriors themselves, told tales of the Kiona's prowess. This was why he wanted to visit Bankson. The tribe is always greener on the other side of the river, she often tried to tell him. But it was impossible not to be envious of other people's people until you laid it out Neatly on the page, your own tribe looked a mess. Do you think we'll see him in Angorum? she asked. They couldn't go traipsing after Bankson. They'd made the decision to go to Australia. Their money wouldn't last much more than a half a year, and it would take several weeks to get settled among the Aborigines. Doubt it. I'm sure he steers clear of the government station. The speed of the boat was disorienting. We need to get that pinnace to Port Moresby tomorrow, Fen. The Ganaya are a good choice for us. You thought the Mombanyo were a good choice for us, too, when we headed there. He rattled the ice of his empty glass. He looked like he had more to say, but he walked back to Minton and the other men. Been married long? said Tilly. Two years in May, Nell said. We had the ceremony the day before we came out here. Swish, honeymoon. They laughed. The bottle of gin came round again. For the next four and a half hours, Nell watched the dressed-up couples... Drink, tease, flirt, wound, laugh, apologize, separate, reintegrate. She watched their young, uneasy faces, saw how thin the layer of self-confidence was, how easily it slipped off when they thought no one was looking. Occasionally, Tilly's husband would raise his arm to point out something on land. Two boys with a net, a quall hanging like a melting sack from a tree, an osprey coasting to its nest, a red parrot mocking their engine. She tried not to think about the villages they were passing, the raised houses and the fire pits, and the children hunting for snakes in the thatch with spears. All the people she was missing, the tribes she would never know and words she would never hear, the worry they might right now be passing the one people she was meant to study, a people whose genius she would unlock, and who would unlock hers, a people who had a way of life that made sense to her. Instead, she watched these Westerners and she watched Fenn, speaking his hard talk to the men, aggressively pressing them about their work, defensively responding when they asked about his, coming to seek her out, then punishing her with a few cutting words and an abrupt retreat. He did this four or five times, dumping his frustration on her, unaware of his own pattern. He was not through punishing her for wanting to leave the Mombanyo. He's handsome, your husband, Eva said, when no one else could hear. I bet he cleans up well. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Lily. I hope you have a chance to read the rest of the book. It's a stunner. Our next reader is, is Anthony Mara. He's a winner of a Whiting Award, 
a Pushcart Prize and the Narrative Prize. Um, his novel, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena, won the National Book Critics Circle inaugural John Leonard Award for Best First Book and also the Annis Field Wolf Book Award in Fiction. He studied at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, where he got an MFA, and was a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University, where he teaches as the Jones Lecturer in Fiction. He has lived and studied in Eastern Europe and now resides in Oakland. As pointed out, Constellation of Vital Phenomenon was a first novel. And that's why we've created the John Leonard Award, to, to give honor to a very first book of any genre. In this case, it was a novel. A Constellation of Vital Phenomenon is set from 1994 to 2004, a decade during which Chechnya sustained a series of devastating wars, occupations, and insurgencies. In the course of researching his novel, Mira spent time in Chechnya. And on his website, you can see photos of him wearing traditional Chechnyan dress, grilling and eating shizhlik, and doing various other things, and it shows the countryside as well. What interested me, among other things, is the authors whose books he turned to as sources included Anna Politskaya, a courageous journalist who was assassinated in October 2006 for her stance on the Second Chechnyan War. Politkovskaya's book, A Russian Diary, which was completed shortly before her death, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Autobiography. Mara, by the way, has a new book coming in October. It's a story collection called The Tsar of Love and Techno, with stories set, yes, in the Soviet Union, Russia, and Chechnya as well. So welcome, Anthony Mara. Thank you so much. It's, it's a, a real privilege and an honor to be here. Thank you, Jane, for, for inviting me and, and AWP for hosting this. Um, I'm going to read a, a few pages from my novel. In terms of, of background, I suppose all, all I should say is that uh, this, this section is about a surgeon named Sonia who um, is trying to figure out how to run a hospital in an environment where you know running water is in short supply. And in order to procure medical supplies, she decides to go into business with a local smuggler. Sonia contacted the brother of a man whose life she'd saved when a landmine lodged eight ball bearings, four screws, and three ten-kopeck coins into his left leg. The brother met her in the back seat of a Mercedes that drove in tight circles on a tennis court-sized slab of asphalt just outside its garage the only unbroken stretch of road that could accommodate such a fine western automobile. He pinched a Marlboro filter between manicured fingernails. She needn't look past his first knuckle to verify his access to smuggling routes, snaking through the southern mountains like veins through marble. You saved Alu's life, the brother said, setting the cigarette between his delicate lips. For that, I owe you a favor. A small one, because of my six brothers, I like Alu the least. She handed him a list limited to easily procurable medical supplies, absorbent compressed dressings, adhesive bandages, antiseptic ointment, breathing barriers, and so on. It's basic stuff, she said. Any medical distributor will have it. You can find most of it inside the average first aid kit. I just need a lot of it. Alu spoke highly of you, the brother lamented. I should have known we wouldn't get along. Anything else? 
I thought I only had one favor, Sonia asked. Let me tell you a story, the brother said, holding his cigarette like a conductor's baton. When I was a child, I had a pet turtle whom I named after Alu because they shared a certain, how can I put it, intelligence. Once I went to Grozny with my father and five brothers for the funeral of my father's uncle, and we left so quickly I hadn't the time to prepare food for Alu the turtle. My brother, Alu the idiot, had a fever and stayed home with my mother. He caught grubs and crickets, feeding them to my beloved crustacean. Since then, Alu the idiot has grown into a Gibraltar-sized hemorrhoid, but when he was a child, he used the one good idea this life has allotted him to remember to feed my turtle, and because of it, you get a second favor. Turtles aren't crustaceans, Sonia said. Excuse me, half crustacean, the brother corrected himself. They're full-blooded reptiles. The brother gaped at her. You should hear yourself. You sound ridiculous. A turtle is 100% reptile, she said. I imagine even Alu knows that. Don't insult me, the brother said. Everyone knows a turtle is crustacean on its mother's side. Explain that to me, she said, shifting in the seat as the car spun in circles. The brother smiled. A lizard fucks a crab, and nine months later a turtle pops out. It's called evolution. I hope your biology teacher was sent to the gulag, she said. She caught the driver's eyes in the rear view. The driver had grown up in a mountain hamlet where more people believed in trolls than in automobiles. The first war had catapulted him from the back of a mule to the inside of a Mercedes, and he would look back at that war as the one stroke of good fortune in a life otherwise riddled with disappointment. What's the second favor? the brother asked. Sonia wrote several titles on a list and passed it back. My God, he said, you're worse than I could have ever imagined. No wonder you and Alu got on famously. Modes of modern psychological inquiry? Post-traumatic stress disorder causes symptoms and treatment? You want textbooks? I was thinking cocaine and a prostitute. Can you get them or not? Sonia asked. We'll see, he said. Guns, drugs, uranium, hostages, no problem. But I've never been asked to find books or medical supplies. These will be a challenge. The Mercedes drove in dizzying circles, and Sonia wanted out of this spinning, nauseating contraption. But what could she do? Those who had the bullets also had the bandages. Can you get them or not, she asked. Don't insult me, he said. I can steal the spots off a snow leopard. After work the next day, Sonia visited her next-door neighbor, Lena. Lena Lena never looked particularly pleased to see Sonia, but she never looked particularly pleased about anything these days, and Sonia did not take it personally. The old woman received daily visitations from ghosts, angels, prophets, and monsters, and some evenings Sonia wondered if she was, to this old woman, a trivial hallucination. I saw an ice machine at the bazaar the other day, Sonia said. Lena didn't look up from the scarf she was knitting, afraid to raise her eyes with so many visions crowding the air. It once cooled the glasses of the Bee Gees, or so said the freezer merchant. You can tell by the way I use my walk I'm a woman's man, Lena said, without, without lifting her eyes from the needle tips. Feel the city breaking and everyone shaking and we're staying alive. You know that song, Sonia asked? Of course, Lena said. People used to recite it during the war. For the longest time, I thought it was a poem. 
For the next hour, Lena described the abounding supernatural phenomena. The angel Gabriel had fluttered into a roosterless henhouse in zebra yurt, and the next morning a farmer found eight immaculately conceived chicks. A boy in Grozny defeated his grandfather, a chess master, third class, after a game lasting 39 sleepless days and nights that left the grandfather so bewildered, proud, and exhausted, he promptly died. A band of corpse devils rose from the earth at the Dagestan border to hijack three Red Cross cargo trucks, leaving the drivers hogtied and blindfolded and magically suspended three meters in the air. Stalin has been resurrected, Lena said. I know. Sonia replied. He's the prime minister now. A week later, when the black Mercedes found her, Sonia was sure she'd wandered into one of Lena's deliriums. The Mercedes braked sharply, drawing a curtain of dust along the street. The tires, before so dainty they could only drive in circles on a tennis court, were replaced with those of an armored jeep, raising the body of the car by a half meter. Swedish license plates, she noted, were still attached. The window descended, and those gorgeous fingernails beckoned her. I thought we wouldn't be seeing each other again, she said, pulling closed the door. And I keep saying, I'll never see Alu again, and he keeps on being my brother. You intrigue me, Sonia. You lived in London for several years. Had you stayed, you'd be eligible for citizenship by now. Even I can't get my name into one of those beautiful maroon passports. And yet, you returned. I have family here, she said, uneasily. The brother frowned. I hide the toilet paper when my family visits so they won't stay too long. They reached the Grozny garage two hours later. Two dour-faced men met them at the door holding Kalashnikovs, one still three weeks from killing the other in an argument that would begin over driving directions. Three trucks sat at the end of the concrete tarmac. The brother led her to the first truck whose shot-off lock clung by a half-broken, glimmering grip. He lifted the door and shined a flashlight into the trailer. A Red Cross first aid kit sat in the circle of yellowed light. The circle spread to to illuminate torn cardboard boxes and hundreds, no, thousands of first aid kits. These were stolen, she said. Of course they were, the brother replied. I had to hijack three Red Cross cargo trucks. But as you said, nearly all of what you asked for can be found inside a first aid kit. What happened to the drivers, Sonia asked. Why do you care? She could feel him testing her, ready to blunt the slightest edge of moral outrage with a lecture on relativism in war, or maybe with another example of his contempt for Alu. She unsnapped the first aid kit and surveyed the contents, four compress, absorbent compress dressings, eight adhesive bandages, a tube of antiseptic ointment, a breathing barrier, latex gloves, gauze roll, thermometer, aspirin packet, and scissors. For all she cared, she closed the lid, refastened the clips, and had nothing but gratitude to give him. For all she cared, the the drivers could be hogtied and beaten, since now she had the ointment to to disinfect their cuts, the gauze to bandage their wounds, the scissors to cut them free. What about the morphine, she asked. I nearly forgot, he said, and pulled a black nylon duffel bag from the front seat, set it on the bumper, and unzipped it. A plastic-wrapped brick of white powder lay at the bottom. Morphine is too expensive, he said, handing it to her. What is this, she asked. Heroin, he said. The word alone weighed ten kilograms. 
This was what her sister Natasha had shot into her veins every day for eight months. My God, she thought. My God. Is it unadulterated, she asked. Not enough sugar in there to sweeten a cup of tea, the brother beamed. I asked for morphine. And even if, if you had done me the favor of lobotomizing Alu while he was under your care, I wouldn't get you morphine. Heroin is much cheaper. Then I want something else, Sonia said, an ice machine. The hospital has been without one for several months. There's a mustached man at the bazaar selling a nice one from the in-tourist hotel. And where are the books I asked for? You've chosen the wrong profession, he said, enjoying her stubbornness. You're a natural swindler. I've had difficulty finding them, but they should come in shortly. I have a nephew in the West. He bought them from Amazon.com. He's sending them by DHL Express. What's Amazon.com? Sonia asked. A brutal, organized crime syndicate, he said. <laughs> They'll put me out of business. And DHL? They're like mailmen, he said, only they deliver mail. They'll run me out of business, too. The brother gave a soul-deflating sigh. The whole world is conspiring to run me out of business. Two weeks later, Sonia returned from the hospital with the textbooks straining the rucksack straps against her shoulder. Her left hand, wrapped around a glass of ice, was numb. At the kitchen table, she examined the glass of ice. Each cube was rounded by room temperature, dissolving in its own remains, and belatedly she understood that this was how a loved one disappears. Despite the shock of walking into an empty flat, the absence is an immediate, more a fade from the present tense you shared, a melting into the past, not an erasure, but a conversion in form, from presence to memory, from solid to liquid, and the person you once touched now runs over your skin, now in sheets down your back, and you may bathe, may sink, may drown in the memory, but your hands cannot hold it. She raised the glass to her lips. The water was clean and cold, and then it was gone. Thank you. Our third reader is Jane Ann Phillips, who is currently Distinguished Professor of English and Director of the Rutgers Newark MFA program. Jane Ann was born and raised in West Virginia, her first book of stories, Black Tickets, was published in 1979 when she was 26, won the prestigious Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction, uh, that, which was awarded by the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters. Her first novel, Machine Dreams, came out in 1984. It elegantly and astutely observes one American family from the turn of the century through the Vietnam War. It was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Lark and Termite, set in the 1950s in West Virginia and Korea, was a finalist for both the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. It also won the Heartland Prize. In my review for Critical Mass, I described Lark and Termite as an electrifying novel, a story of love, longing, and consequences so intense and sensually vivid it feels as real as memory. Jane Ann has that ability. She's a, a really, like all of our finalists and winners over the years, she's been uh, an extraordinary stylist who's able to give 
empathy to the human existence. She'll be rereading today from her fifth novel, which is called Quiet Dell. It's based on a true story of an infamous 1931 serial murderer um, who acted around her hometown in West Virginia. And she first heard about him as a girl. Toward the end of the novel, she writes, Life was merciless, then briefly miraculous. I concluded my review of this book with saying her artful fusion of fact and fiction, she pulls off a rare sense of lightness and grace at the end of the novel. The relationships and deep love developing among the people drawn to the tragedy represent a counterpart to the darkness. It's a pleasure for us to include in our reading today Jane Ann Phillips. She's reading from Quiet Dell. Thank you so much for coming today. Everyone hear me? I'm so happy to be here with these wonderful writers, and thanks, too, to the NBCC for all you do for writers all the time. I'm reading from Quietel today, um, from the very beginning of the book, in which Annabelle Eicher speaks directly to the reader. Annabelle is a precocious nine-year-old. This takes place on Christmas Eve, 1930. She's very recently lost her beloved grandmother, who encouraged her and her writing and her drawing. Annabelle doesn't realize that she sees images that will come to pass in the future because she sees them without context. But in fact, the trial of her murderer will take place in an opera house in Clarksburg, West Virginia, about six months from the time that she speaks these words to you. Christmas Eve, 1930, Park Ridge, Illinois. Annabelle begins... When the year turns, there are bells on the wind. All the old years fall on the ground in lights. When you walk across those lights, it sounds like walking on all the piled-up leaves of giant trees. But up high, the bells are ringing for everyone alive. There are silver and gold and glass bells you can see through, and sleigh bells a hundred years old. My grandmother said there was a whisper for each one dead that year, and a feather drifting for each one waiting to be born. My mother says that's just a story, but I always do hear the bells, even in my sleep, and everything in front of me is all white and open like a field. Then I start dreaming. The trees in my dreams sparkle. It's quiet in the dark, and I'm indoors on a stage. The trees are behind me, but they're alive, touching limbs and stirred just so. A silent spirit seems to move among them, and the light has found me. It's a large theater, rows and rows, and a balcony I glimpse through the gleam. The audience is quiet, waiting for me to speak. Perhaps they're watching a play, my play, or a play in which I perform. I can't make out faces beyond the footlights, but I see the tilt of heads and the shapes of ladies' hats, and a glow seems to float amongst them. There's a hum of admiration or excitement, and a swell of whisper like applause. Then the lights on the stage darken, I hear people weeping, so moved are they by their production. Grandmother used to say I might find myself upon a stage one day as an actor or the author of a play. Duty is our Boston terrier that follows heart everywhere and sleeps on our beds by turns. And duty is in my dream. I stand on the stage before the trees and duty is there sitting just at the edge of the light. His little legs are stubby and his chest is broad and his short brown coat shines like a mirror. 
Duty's eyes are wide apart, and he can seem to gaze in two directions, but he only looks off toward the stage, to the wings where no one can see. Grandmother always told me that our dreams are wishes or fancies, gifts of the dream fairies that guide and care for us in our sleep. She said that poems and stories are the whisperings of angels we cannot see, beings once like you and me who know more than we can know while we are here. Address me in your mind when I am gone, grandmother told me. I will hear you always and will send a reply in the sounds of the grass and the wind and other little signs, for we no longer speak in words when we have slipped away. I fed her with a teaspoon. She could not hold the cup. She talked about the silken cord that binds her soul to mine. She slept and woke and slept and woke. The cord is a real cord, and I keep it under my pillow, not all of it, once it was very long, the last of the silk braid mother used on the sofa pillows. Grandmother made a game of it for walking through the park. We children went afternoons with grandmother, single file, holding to the cord. She used to say there was one of, a, of her and three of us. We children must hold to the cord just so. She fashioned one large knot for each right hand, and I was first behind her. We held to the cord in silence, for Grandmother liked us to hear small sounds, the cricket, the mantis, the grass moving in the meadow. Sound travels even in the cord we hold, Grandmother said, for the heart beats in the hand. You are not like others, Grandmother liked to tell me. Your dreams see past us. The trees in my dream shine like trees on a glittery valentine. The sparkle looks like snow catching light or drops of rain held fast. It's a wonderful effect. Living trees could stand on a stage in pots of earth, and the limbs might move on wires, gently, as though stirred by a breath. Grandmother told me when she was still up and sitting in her chair that she would sleep longer and longer, and then not wake up. She said her death would be a blessed death, and one she wished for me when I am very old. Grandmother can hear me. I do believe so. And I hear her voice and words that come to me. Perhaps she has sent me the dream about the trees. I could hear a sigh in the branches, a bare whisper. No doubt there was a fan off stage blowing a breath of motion. Grandmother used to say, so little can move so much. I'm skipping now to July of 1931. Harry Powers has murdered a widow and her three children, one of them being Annabelle, and a divorcee, all of whom came to West Virginia willingly. Emily Thornhill is a reporter for the Chicago Tribune who's driven all night to arrive at Quiet Dell, West Virginia, just after the bodies of Annabelle, her sister and brother, and her mother have been removed. Emily has adopted Duty, the dog, because she considers him a material witness to the crime. And in fact, she arrives with, with duty in the car. Emily breathed in the crushed green smells of earth, wild mustard, honeysuckle, and then a darker scent. They pulled carefully onto an open dirt road before the garage, which was rude and small, square, flat-roofed, with wooden doors in front. The crowd, perhaps 200 or more, stood quietly, all looked toward the back of the building. Emily heard then the pounding of pickaxes and the slough of dirt, 
shoveled and thrown. The smell was the ditch, uncovered. They're gone now, she told herself. They're not here, not even their bodies. But the men were still digging, and the crowd was waiting. A quiet restlessness moved among them. Few spoke, and only in lowered voices. The ditch, a deep gash, ran straight some 40 or 50 feet from the murder garage to the back of the lot. Duty struggled forward on the leash, dragging Emily to the very edge of the ditch. It seemed he might jump in, and the thought horrified her. The ditch was muddy and wet, for it opened into a little creek whose dark green water lay nearly still, barely visible through towering weeds. Scrub trees and purple stocky blooms taller than the men who stood near them. Was that Queen Anne's lace grown to such a height? The white flowers were the size of parasols. A smaller ditch, the uncovered gas line, bisected the large one. The two indentions formed a shape very like a cross that emptied into the water. Emily turned, pulling the dog with her, peering past the disturbed ground as far as the horizon. The creek looked no more than 15 feet across, and she could see the water move, a glowing lip against the opposite shore and gently ascending meadow. Heavy-limbed trees stood silhouetted in the field, their canopies moving. The sky was pale blue against the darker earth, and the creek seemed to mark a line between one world and another. She imagined walking across the water, leading duty on the leash to that other empty meadow that lay bathed in the softest pearlized light. But none of them on this side were worthy of that place. I'm going to end with a very short section from Annabelle's point of view, because in fact her point of view moves through this novel even after her death. Annabelle can dream when she's awake and waken in her sleep, or she's never asleep, but always dreaming. She moves above or through the urgency of people moving and doing. She turns away at will and bridges great distances in the breadth of a thought. She's here in the place grandmother called below. Narrow dirt roads thread through the mountains. Drawn closer, she sees throngs of people crowded near the hunched garage. Lines of metal glint in angled curves, the tops of many black cars. The glass of the windscreen sparkles and catches the sun. She sees the long, bright car that pulls up last. A woman gets out with duty on the leash. Annabelle hears the click of the leash moving and smells the trampled grass, dung and earth, so many shoes and boots and mingled bodies. She knows she smells what duty smells. She cannot feel the weight of him or the warmth, but senses him intensely, for nothing separates her now from those for whom she longs so deeply. Duty turns his head, confused. His long, mournful search is over. He has found them. Emily stands beside the dark slash in the ground. Duty smells some remnant mixed in the earth and pulls her to the dirt edge. He would leap into the dark, roll in it and taste it, as with dead things at home, a squashed bird, a rabbit torn by cats. Annabelle waits in the meadow across the creek. There is no death here, no danger. Birds take wing-like glimmers rising up. Rabbits wear their closed wounds like flowers. She knows the gash across the creek is dense and black, deepening, tugging at the crouched garage. The people standing near are quiet, as though gathered for a meeting of great import. Across the way, 
light flashes from the roof of the garage, like an eye that opens while the ground is sifted and pulled. Deep in the gash, a glow begins. They found something. They murmur that something is found. Annabelle hears Duty barking as he used to bark at home. The crowd is shifting and moving, and she sees Duty pull Emily toward her, straining at the leash. Thank you. I'm going to ask some questions of our readers, but first I want to say thank you. It was very moving and transporting, and and it's works of the imagination that we need today to quiet us down in these busy times. Um, I want to ask each of you, because each of you read from work that draws from real life, Anthony from the Chechnya War, Lily from Margaret Mead's life, Jane Ann from a historical crime, a serial killer who really existed. What's the hardest thing about researching your fiction? And let's start with Lily and go one, two, three. Lily, Margaret Um, Mead, Euphoria. I think the hardest thing was knowing what to do with the research after I had it in a big notebook. I, as I said, I, I was researching this book over the course of five or six years while I was writing another novel. And, uh, and I had this green notebook. And at first, I didn't really know what I was doing with it. I really had not committed to writing a novel. I was, I was too daunted by the idea of writing that novel. But I had to take notes about this situation because I was just curious about it. And so read a number of books and I had this green notebook and I would write um, details that kind of struck me down in in the notebook and then it was a strange kind of research because I really kind of tried to keep my imagination open so that every time I got a good detail I might see a, a scene or a line of dialogue and I'd write that down too and and so by the end of it I, I had not only my research, but also just a lot of ideas for scenes and possibilities of what could happen in this sort of fictional account. And and then and then I was done with my other novel, and it was time for me to to start writing this one. And I just looked at that notebook, and I'm like, well, what am I going to do with that? You know, I, I've always written novels just from my head, and I wasn't really sure what to do with all this research. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, what researchers do, what biographers, I imagine, do is they get index cards. And so I went to my pharmacy and I got a stack of index cards and I wrote out all of my ideas and all of the research and everything. And and it took me weeks, you know, it was such a great distraction. And then I had this huge stack of index cards and I, you know, got out my notebook that I write in fiction and I looked at the stack of index cards and I'm like, what am I going to do with that? And uh, I kind of stared at it for a while because I wanted it in my head. I didn't I, I didn't know how to work with that. And so then a friend of mine, I went running with her, and she said, you have to get Scrivener, which is, you know, a, I'm sure you all know, it's a um, writing program on the computer. So I got Scrivener, and then I put it all, you know, I wrote it all out onto Scrivener. And, uh, and that was good, because then I could search. You know, I had a little search engine. So when I remembered, okay, what was I going to do with a crocodile egg? I could type in crocodile egg, and boom, it would come up with me. But the, tra- but the great thing about that was I had written it out so many times by then that it was all in my head, and I didn't need it, you know, in, in any form anymore. So I think that was probably the most challenging. Anthony, you've been to Chechnya and read about it. What was the hardest thing, researching? I suppose that um, finding in all of the, the books of history and, and political theory and all of that, finding um, those small, really minute sort of authenticating details. 
that because so few journalists were allowed into Chechnya during this, this time period, there are far more research um, materials on sort of strategy and politics and these overarching themes about what, you know, what the insurgent commanders were thinking, what Putin was thinking, and far less about what was, you know, a school teacher in a small village thinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, Anna Politkovskaya was was one of those of those people that I went to uh, again and again. There's there's a a really tremendous memoirist named Hassan Bayev um, that I that I went to. Um, and I, I, I did something similar in, in terms of creating this this massive list of just small little details that mm-hmm. made me rethink a particular scene. So, for instance, in a small uh, corner of hell by by Politkovskaya, there's this small little little scene. It's maybe a paragraph about uh, a newly married couple moving into an apartment. And the first thing they do is start unpacking their clothes, and they they put them in uh, the oven and in the refrigerator because the power is out and they know that it won't come back on anytime soon. And it's just this small little mm-hmm. little little moment that's that seems to hint at what it truly felt like in a way that these larger um, sort of political treatises can't quite uh, capture. So and the I, morphine heroin detail uh, you, in your yeah, section you read? Well, there was a, a shortage of, of morphine across, um, mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. That, that region. And there were all of these sort of fantastically inventive ways that, that surgeons would discover in order to, to treat their patients. So, so people would use, um, would use dental floss, would mm-hmm, use mm-hmm. Um, the golden threads in jeans if they could find a pair of jeans. Those were uh, particularly strong to use for, for stitches. And those, those small little pieces of information were, were the hardest to come by and the, the ones that I think make maybe the book feel um, at its liveliest. Truthful and authentic. Jane Ann, with Quiet Dell, you were dealing with a real murder out there. From a historic point of view, what was the toughest part for you? Well, I remember, you know, 31 years ago when Machine Dreams came out, using for research my father's own letters from World War II and then answering them with invented letters from Billy, the boy who goes missing in Vietnam. But uh, so research has always been a part of everything I've done, but Quiet Dell was different in that I was writing an imaginative rendering of something that really occurred. All of the characters, with the exception of very tiny, uh, secretive few revealed in the afterward, were real people. And of course, because they lived 83 years ago, um, I was inventing them based on very few real details that I found. I studied the newspapers from, of the era exhaustively to really kind of take in the voice of the 30s and the way that people spoke and the way that people wrote. And I think the, one of the most difficult things was to inhabit this world and to uh, be inside a story that had an in- inevitable conclusion and yet to transform it into something that was uh, a spiritual victory or a way of saving the children, in my own mind anyway. Mm-hmm. I want to ask each of you, it's, it's, it may seem like a funny question, but I think we may have in the, our audience some, some MFA students or people who might be working on first novels. 
each of you had um, critical acclaim with your first books and quite a bit of attention. Anthony and Jane Ann both were honored by the National Book Critics Circle. Lily, you won a Barnes & Noble Discover Award. How did the acclaim from your first novels transform your lives or your first books? Jane Ann, you want to start? I'll start with you and go back the other way. <laughs> um, well, it was different then. No. Um, <laughs> My first book actually was more of a, an adjustment because Black Tickets was a book of stories that sort of was published by a major publisher at a time when stories weren't being published. And after that, there were a great many fantastic books of American short stories that sort of came along almost in a group. But I think that I, my way of dealing with it was, with it was to completely ignore it. Um, I, I sort of considered it to be happening to someone else. It certainly wasn't me. And when Machine Dreams was published, it was about you know four or five years later. It takes me a very long time to write anything. And it was just incredibly gratifying and supportive. Uh, at the same time, I think the writer in me simply just tried to ignore it because the real, the real process is, is one's own process, and that has to always be the thing that keeps one going. Okay. Tony? Um, it's funny. I, I, I um, j- just now, as as you were speaking, I um, I realized that after my novel was published, I, I think some part of me assumed that now I knew how to do it, and it was just going to get easier. Like now, I know how to write a book. I mean, you know how to make a grilled cheese once. You can probably do it do it twice. And and sadly, uh, books aren't, aren't aren't grilled cheese sandwiches. Um, and uh, so, in terms of writing, I think it's more or less stayed the, the same. In that, a blank page is is sort of a blank page, regardless of of what you wrote two years ago. And so that aspect of it, I, I think, has remained the same. Um, I think the, the biggest change might be just having my work read by people who aren't writers. That, you know, I, I went to an MFA program and, and shared my, my work with, uh, with students there when I was a student and, and a few people that I've kept in touch with. And, and as soon as Constellation was, was published, I realized it was sort of the first time that, that people who were not connected to the literary world at all might be reading it, and and it's been um, it's been just sort of immensely gratifying and, and humbling to see the the strange ways that your story can become parts of, of other people's stories and mm-hmm. and parts of, of other people's lives. Um, particularly since I think this this book is is about you know this this conflict in Chechnya. I've had the opportunity to speak with people whose whose testimony I researched when I was writing the the, the novel. And, and and you've been back. I'm going back in uh, in June. I haven't been back since I was there a few years a few years back. But yeah, uh, maybe three weeks ago, uh, a, a guy in Grozny emailed me to ask if he could e- illegally download the book on uh, on a BitTorrent site. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, other nice moments like like that. Yeah. Ellie, about you. Um, I had a baby and a first novel pretty much at the same time. And so it's a little bit of a fog for me. I, I, I can't really remember all that much what I was feeling because I think I was really, really focused on, on being Sleeping. a good mother. <laughs> you know, I was, uh, you know, all of my anxiety about becoming a writer flipped and it went on to, you know, being a good mother. And uh, I, I think I had sort of a similar experience of having classes in college and graduate school and, you know, a small group of writers 
read my stuff, and then and then being out of graduate school, you know, writing my first novel for I don't know a long time, probably seven years after school, or maybe five years after school, and then just having a, a even smaller group of people, you know, who would read it at the end. And, and then to put it out in the world and have all these different kind of readers, people I didn't know, you know, that I had no relationship with. And it was reassuring to sort of think, okay, well, you know, it's, it's okay. All of that anxiety that I had, I've recently been reading over um, a journal from that time. And, you know, it is such an incredible, um, incredibly terrifying risk to take to become a writer, especially if you don't have any financial support and you know you're just out there and at that time I feel like a lot of my friends were starting to get real jobs and starting to become lawyers and have offices and salaries and that sort of thing and and I was a waitress for years and years and and that it's a whole you know you're worried that the novel's going to fail but you're also just worried that you're making a series of really bad life choices so I feel uh, like after that, that was the most reassuring thing. And I, and I also got a whiting, and, and to get that kind of money, you know, with a prize was, was so amazing to me because I'd been so broke for so long. Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful to have you here. You may notice that all of our people who have been reading today are also on social media. They're on Twitter and they're on Facebook. How do you connect with your readers in that manner and still find time to write your books? Well, I, I, I have Facebook and, and Twitter, but I am, as, as you've probably noticed, very, uh, uh, not very good about keeping up with it. Um, and uh, I, I really lo- I, I love it for the, um, for the ability to, to, to meet with individual people, to connect with a single person, that if somebody like tweets you or said something on Facebook, you can respond individually. And I've, I've sort of made you know, a number of friends over the last couple of years just through, through social media. But one of the reasons that I, I like writing and, and, and that um, have always felt drawn to it is because it allows you to sort of in, insulate yourself a little bit from, from the world, where, where you're sort of creating your own um, you know, mirror image in your imagination. And sometimes it feels like every time, you know, my phone dings or beeps or vibrates, it's, it sort of punctures that a little mm-hmm. bit. So, so I generally, um, in the daytime, I, I, I don't use it at all. And then at, at night, maybe I'll, I'll catch up with, with people a little bit. Jane Ann, do you have a, any rules? I think that's a good rule that, you know, I think when one is writing, when I, I usually write when I have three months to myself. I, I, I admit that I write in the summer because I have a very intense day job. I have 3,000 emails somehow right now. I know that's not right, uh, <laughs> but there, it's a kind of filing system, uh, and I am on, on Twitter as, not really as myself, but as Jane Ann only. So I'm there and I'm not there. <laughs> I'd love to hear from any of you, of course. Uh, and, you know, I do look at Facebook. I have a tiny, tiny Instagram account that's only my family. Mm-hmm. That's how I know what my sons are doing. But I think it's a, it's a very interesting world now because um, everything is kind of out there in the stratosphere all the time. And I think on the one hand, you know, writers have always been people with permeable boundaries. I mean, I think that we are people who can empathize our way into another consciousness so intently that we might 
have moments in which we forget ourselves. That's the, the amazing thing about writing. And now there's that sort of sort of media soup out there in which there are no boundaries, and one has to sort of click into it and and move out of it because I do think writing requires intense privacy, and it requires that kind of no brain moment. There was this whole thing on NPR recently about people are always using their devices whenever they find themselves bored or waiting for something or, or like just looking absently out the window, they grab the phone and they look. Uh, and in fact, it's that mind, that sort of no mind in which creativity actually happens, in which things occur to you. So I think it's really important to have moments and time in which you are not thinking supposedly about anything. Beautifully said. Beautifully, beautifully said. I think that is so true. And uh, I feel like um, social media and the internet is just never, ever going to help my writing in any way. And uh, I have to banish it. It's really tricky because I have sort of young kids and, you know, there's this whole feeling that I have to have my phone nearby. And so I, I try to rig it so it's won't ding when it texts, and it certainly doesn't ding when, it, when I get an email or anything like that, but I want to have, you know, a certain ring from my children's school kind of thing. But I, I'm just bad at it. I'm bad at social media. I know it's very useful for some people for promoting a book, and I think it's really hard to make that transition for me now from promoting a book back to writing a book. I love to sort of be a voyeur on Twitter, and I'm a, I'm a good retweeter. Uh, but actually saying things about my own private life, I, I'm not a private person at all. I could tell you I, I'm an open book in person. But on the Internet, I, I don't feel that way at all. I feel suddenly like an incredibly private person. I don't, I don't want to say what I had for breakfast, and I don't <laughs> even know why. I don't, I, it's not even stuff that's important that I'm hiding, but I just... Uh, I think it has to do with that 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 privacy, that that other world that you want to have, and you can't be kind of out there trying to communicate with all these strangers. It's it's all very confusing to me. <laughs> I have to say, I'm grateful for all each of you for going to that other world and bringing back these glorious books, these novels, these these stories you write are so important to our culture. I thank you for that. I want to thank you also for traveling far to be in this room and and gather and present and, and be listened to. I know that there are books to be signed at the back, so I, I wish you well with signing those books. I'll see you later. But a huge thank you from the National Book Critics Circle. Thank you. You've been fabulous. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.